and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Tibble. It all goes back to the age of reason, Peter Cook told us. There was this Burke called Burke. Edmund Burke is one of the key political thinkers of the Enlightenment, now held up by conservatives as a major influence, long before the word conservative was even used. But he has also once been a liberal icon. He continues to be widely cited as an inspiration. And here to shed some light on Edmund Burke is Richard Burke. Richard is a professor of the history of political thought at Cambridge University and is the author of, amongst other things, Empire and Revolution, The Political Life of Edmund Burke. Welcome to the bunker, Richard. Thank you very much. So this um, dilemma around Burke, is he a conservative or a liberal? Why is this? Well, there's two questions there. Why is there a dilemma at all? And and also, how would one categorise him? I mean, I'm inclined to think about this, I suppose, more precisely historically, in which case these categories, this terminology is not perfectly applicable to this period, Mm. which is to say the late 18th century. Um, These really become live, if you like, ideologies in the 19th century, and Burke becomes variously appropriated into them. So he's been identified variously as a conservative and and a liberal because there were conservative and liberal parties in the 19th century, and at different stages by members of those parties, by sort of intellectual sort of public figures within those parties, he became appropriated. Many positions which have nothing to do with liberalism might be described as liberal, you know, support for the rule of law, um, support for the separation of powers, various constitutional arrangements. And equally, many, many positions might be identified, you know, generically, conceptually as conservative. I mean, uh, many, many socialists are out to conserve values. I think Burke has elements in his thought which seek to conserve and elements in his thought which seek to to liberalise. But if one is to use those concepts, I think one really wants to separate them from the idea of later political parties, political movements and ideologies. Right. And, and running with that, he would have seen things very differently in his own time. I mean, he would have been identified as a Whig, and we don't see many Whigs these days. And he was very much at the sort of forefront of the breakup of the Whigs between the old and the new. How does that play out? He not only was identified uh, as a Whig, but he was also self-identifying uh, as a Whig, which uh, which helps. Um, so the, the 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 Whig Party was a sort of dominant 18th century party, originally formed in the 17th century in response to essentially uh, um, the exclusion crisis and the Glorious Revolution. So it was a sort of opposition or revolution or rebellion, if you like, party. But it became very much an establishment party from the 1720s on. But by the 1760s, and remember, Burke is born in 1730, and so he's an adult um, in 1760, you know, a fully-fledged adult, and goes into goes in actively into politics around about 1765, 66. So in 1760 itself, because George III comes to the throne and is no longer seen as a sort of Hanoverian monarch as exclusively backing the Whigs, the Whigs themselves go into a sort of meltdown. So Burke is a particular arm of Whiggism known as the Rockingham Whigs. Mm -hmm. And he very explicitly joins that, if you like, grouping within Parliament as soon as he enters in in January 1766. And at that point, they're in government. And so Mm -hmm. he's, you know, a member of a governing uh, Rockingham Whig party. 
And do you have any thoughts maybe on the importance, actually, to his political role? But bearing in mind, of course, MPs weren't paid. It was very much a voluntary spare time kind of a thing. But Burke the philosopher being influenced by Burke the politician. Yes. Well, I think it's very important to bear in mind that whilst Burke brought to politics enormous eloquence and enormous intellectual power and enormous industry, it has to be said. I mean, you know, he's a hard worker and a man of business. Bringing all those things to Parliament, he was nonetheless governed by the agenda set by Parliament itself. So Burke's interests are, are not his freestanding interests, but rather those thrown up by parliamentary developments in the in the in the sixties and seventies and eighties and so on and so forth. So Burke's the main themes that we associate with. Burke, or the, the main topics which we identify him with, like a, an interest in Ireland, an interest in India, an interest in the American Revolution, an interest in the French Revolution, an interest in Wilkes, uh, an interest in representation, you know, an interest in the reform of Parliament. These are not simply his independent interests. These are the issues uh, that come before Parliament that he's obliged to immerse himself in. But of course, he does immerse himself in them, and he brings to them, as I say, um, a sort of energy and enterprising spirit and um, intellectual power. You were already touched on how some of his ideas weren't cast in stone around modern ideas of conservatism. These are actually quite radical, quite progressive ideas, depending on how you see that in, in the context of its time. We tend to associate him a lot of the time with opposition against the French Revolution, but his writings and his speeches around the American Revolution give a very different idea, you know, a generation earlier. Do you want to say maybe a bit about that and how he regarded revolutions. So whilst later in his career, he certainly became a, a critic of the French Revolution, as mentioned. Earlier on, he was a critic of the government of the day, principally Lord North, in defending the um, American colonies and their right to claim their rights um, against the hegemony of the, of the British Empire. He was a defender of the right to rebel against despotic government. So uh, that's an important point to hang on to because even when he was um, indicting the negative consequences of the French Revolution from, roughly speaking, the, the late summer of 1789 onwards, whilst he was criticizing you know, the trajectory of the revolution, including its early um, direction and inspirations, he didn't relinquish, even at that stage, and even in his most famous book, Reflection of the Revolution in France, which was published in November 1790, he didn't back down from his defense of the mm. right to rebel. And in fact, in the re reflections itself, there is a defense of in extremis when threatened by despotism, um, a body of the population at large has a right to um, assert its revolutionary authority against the state. So that is not typically a conservative position and is one which he held throughout his career. That's what it's important to hang on to. His point about France, however, was that um, there was no despotism. This was a reforming government. Mm. And you only resort to the right of revolution under extremely exigent conditions when you're prepared to risk um, you know, political mayhem and disintegration, and this didn't obtain in the case of France. Does that make him a critic of empire, or does that make him a critic of unjust empires? And the reason I ask that is that you do get, of course, these historians like Piers Brendan who argue that he then lays the framework for the British Empire in its 19th century form um, in the arguments that he puts forward. 
Right. Well, empire is yet an additional large question. One needs to bear in mind that we're in the 18th century. We're in a world... It's a smaller empire, yeah. Well, not only that, but the world is divided into empires. And Mm. people think that people think that there's a thing called, you know, France and a thing called Spain and a thing called Britain. And of course, there were these things, but they're not only domestic European states, they're also overseas empires, all of them. Um, And not only that, but elsewhere in the world, other empires are, um, you know, exercising their power. It's not so so some of these European powers are, for instance, in South Asia, but there are South Asian empires, too, and there are Eastern Asian empires, too. So that's to say it's a world of empires. So I don't think that high um, on the agenda for 18th century commentators was the end of empire or dismantling empire or the evil of empire any more than we think of ending the state or dismantling. I mean, of course, one might once, you know, an advanced Marxist or an anarchist, but, but broadly speaking, one might be a critic of uh, various aspects of the state and its policies, while it's nonetheless thinking that any reform agenda would have to be delivered by a state. So I think Burke is closer to that position. To basically, he's a critic of the what one might describe as the depredations of empire, right. uh, including um, uh, the British case above all the East India Company mm. in uh, on the in the Indian subcontinent, continent, which absorbed his attention for much of his career and um, which cost him a lot, actually, and in relation to which he um, prosecuted or, or impeached Warren Hastings. So, so these are very major and live issues for him. But it's not with a view to killing off something like an extended polity that we might describe as an empire. It's much more about um, what he might have said, uh, described as l- civilizing it, or of course that's a contentious phrase, so we might just say liberalizing it. Context is very important, I think, in all of this. And I was going to ask you about Burke's originality, but one of the things that you have touched on actually is this idea of of the Republic of Letters, a very sort of 18th century Enlightenment idea, that everything he was doing was essentially part of a wider dialogue with other people. So perhaps rather than asking about Burke's originality, where did his original ideas fit in to the Enlightenment? Well, I think the originality of Burke and where he fitted in derives from the fact that not only was he immersed in the intellectual and cultural universe of 18th century Europe, and it's important to mention Europe because, as I say, he was interested in um, Montesquieu as much as he was interested mm-hmm. in in Smith and Hume. Um, but what was particularly unusual about him is um, that he took that furniture with him very much into quotidian public life. So, you know, Thomas Hobbes was a political advisor uh, of, of sorts, and, and so was John Locke. But they weren't involved in the day-to-day business of Parliament um, with their agenda governed by um, the cut and thrust of daily politics in quite the same way. So Burke is very unusual in making, you know, off-the-cuff, in a given exigent and critical situation, responses to a developing world and uh, bringing to that, as I say, a high degree of refined intellectual capacity. So his originality is is in the combination. And I suppose, you know, it's pretty original to have identified fundamental problems with the French Revolution from pretty early on its proceedings. Of course, we're all trained in the late 20th and 21st century to think of 
the French Revolution as a moment of sort of world and European liberation. But that's clearly an extraordinary simplification. Mm. And um, it clearly went pear-shaped. How early is a matter for debate? Mm. I mean, Burke obviously thought already in 89. Um, many others, of course, agreed with him. And if they didn't, they came around that to that position by 1793. So the wheels were not put back on that wagon, that's to say the state of France for some considerable period of time. And therefore, something did go horribly wrong. And when the world was reconstructed, or the French world was re- reconstructed after the revolution, it wasn't exactly reconstructed on revolutionary terms. In accordance with any frame of reference, the revolution certainly failed. Uh, and Burke had, you know, potent insights into, you know, why that was. I don't for a moment mean to suggest that he was right about everything. But nonetheless, he saw something um, mm. about what had gone wrong and how dismantling a state is a very dangerous business. You want very good reasons to do it. And obviously, we've got the experience of Iraq. It's, again, the decapitation of a state. And, uh, you know, it, it's common sense amongst the, you know, pundits and literati of today to accept that that went horribly wrong. But if you look closely at the French Revolution, it wasn't a happy, clappy no, uh, process. And, and obviously, the well, the word revolution now has very different connotations because it's an original form to revolve around the turning point. And it could be a very slow turning point over many years. And of course, the, the French Revolution has several phases, not all of them violent. Um, one of the questions I have is is really around how slowly that process unfolds. Burke himself ceases to be an MP in 1794. He's dead by 1797. You could argue the French Revolution is still ongoing in the 1800s, 1810s. You could even argue the 1850s or into the 20th century. How much is his view of the French Revolution dominated by his not living to see its latter stages? He missed the Napoleonic coup, for instance, Mm -hmm. but he did state around about, um, you know, 90... 192, that it could and plausibly would come to pass, um, that if you dismantle a state and it falls into factions, they can only be patched together by a process of military coordination. And the person who ended up in that military um, organization to have a particular authority and power was going to overmaster the state. That clearly appears in Burke. But, but of course, there was the model of Cromwell in everyone's mind preceding. And, of course, this did come to pass with, with Napoleon. So, broadly speaking, I think what Burke saw was that um, a revolution against the state meant uh, collapsing its institutions, putting them up as a matter for contestation and dispute amongst emerging rival factions, and therefore that revolution risks civil war, the ending of a civil war was going to involve a reversion to authoritarianism. So these things did come to pass. Of course, Burke didn't live to 1815 or 1830, um, but there is no stability at that point anyway, because there's, you know, there's, 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 um, you know, a restoration and then another restoration, but then another series of revolutions in the 1840s and then another in the 1870s. So it's hard to know when the French Revolution came to an end. So Mm -hmm. I suppose his insight was that if you take the cork out of the bottle, a lot can be in flux for a considerable period of time. and It's going to be very difficult to pacify an aggravated situation. Would it be dumbing down to say that the main thing conservatives today are interested in in Burke and see in Burke are the role of tradition and authority? No, I think that's very much what they see. There is a language in Burke's reflections because it's 
uh, although not technically an anti-revolutionary tract in the sense that, as I said, it does have a reserve clause justifying revolution, it is an attack on a particular revolution. And in order to attack a particular revolution, it must appeal to, you know, precedent and models of historical stability and what we therefore call tradition. So it is there in the text, there's no doubt about it. And Burke is very eloquent in mobilizing this rhetoric against, you know, insurgent movements. Nonetheless, it's very important to accept, to realize that uh, tradition for Burke does not trump progress. Mm. You know, in technical um, legal language, the language of the 18th, of the 18th century, you know, a prescription, um, i.e. the notion that something is justified simply because it has been inherited from the historical past, you know, this is uh, a powerful mode of argumentation in Burke, but it is overruled by an appeal to natural rights. So although prescription and therefore tradition is a live and potent part of his thought, it is overridden by a more fundamental commitment to um, a program of rights against authority. So one has to keep both these modes of argumentation in play. If we think about more modern types of conservatism, I'm thinking about um, Thatcher, Reagan, the more sort of libertarian stuff that's come out of the Chicago School. I mention the Chicago School because Leo Strauss is one of its great advocates who, of course, hated Burke. I think that's fair to say. Um, how much have modern day conservatives departed from Burke? Well, there are many radical conservatives and radical conservatism looks rather unlike Burke. I mean, he was a supporter of free trade. So actually libertarians have found um, in Burke material that, if you like, supports aspects of their own ideological commitments. Other contemporary conservatives have been interested in other dimensions of his thought. Um, I mean, Jesse Norman in um, the British Parliament today is, is, is a good example, a sort of um, conservatism of um, social conscientiousness, if you like. So there are many Burks and many conservatisms. How much do you think um, Burke has come back into fashion? You mentioned Jesse Norman, who, of course, has written a biography and indeed doc did doctoral research on Burke. But if I think back to the last three conservative prime ministers, um, Johnson, Truss, Sunak, I, I don't immediately think of an obvious link to the sort of conservatism Burke was arguing for. It depends on how one thinks of the, 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 the link, because um, a link can be, of mm. course, fabricated. So uh, I think it's very important to see the difference between um, a body of thought arguing a case at time T1 and the possibility of over a complex uh, pro historical development, appropriating it for, for, for various purposes. But I don't think uh, Johnson was himself particularly hostile to aspects of Jesse Norman um, types argumenta of argumentation uh, before, you know, earlier on in both their careers. Burke is uh, very unlike Liz Truss, for instance, insofar as she's an avowed radical. But on the other hand, she's a committed libertarian and she could find, find some solace in aspects of his thought. So this is a very complex moving jigsaw. Um, and of course, there are Labour Party members who've been very um, interested in Burke. I mean, some of, some of Blue Labour, mm. uh, but also the Burkean tradition of, of, of criticising empire, of being with the meek of the earth and, and so on and so forth. 
uh, you know, sort of Christian conscience. Um, so there are these various dimensions. I, I think, you know, from my point, I'm an academic, not a politician. And therefore, you know, obviously my implication is to, is to, is to save Burke from the politicians. Obviously, I know he's a potent ally for a politician. So for, he is taken up by them. But, but, you know, I have to, my job is slightly different, which is, you know, to say, beware against this, the attendant simplifications. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for a very forensic look at Burke. Richard's book, Empire and Revolution, The Political Life of Edmund Burke, is available from all good outlets. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us. We'll be back soon with another edition. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember that you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows like The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, Origin Story, Arthur Snell's Doomwatch, and our latest edition, Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Seth Tavoff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Kasia Tomaszewicz, Simon Williams, and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker. It's a Podmasters production.